Well, I want to welcome you all. Thank you for being here uh, for our talk on Christian nationalism. And uh, I thought I would stay out of trouble and not speak on anything people are passionate about or that they, they care a lot about. So I settled for Christianity and nationalism and politics all mixed into one. Let me, uh, let me pray for us and then we'll begin. God, we are grateful for uh, this conference, for Pastor MacArthur and his leadership and his example, for the messages we've heard so far, I, and the ones today even that have uh, encouraged us to remember your sovereignty over the world, our, over our eyes, over our hearts. And uh, you indeed are sovereign, so we submit our life to you. We're thankful for our country. I know we've got men in this room from many different countries are thankful uh, as Paul says, that you appointed the uh, bounds of each country and you let them go their own way so that one day they might encounter you through the gospel. And so, Lord, we pray that today's time would be spent in a way that helps us take the gospel to the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the first rule of Christian nationalism is don't listen to anyone who is an expert on Christian nationalism. Uh, and I think that is a good rule to follow. When uh, the Shepherds Conference Guide came out that uh, said I would be talking on Christian nationalism, I was inundated with people messaging me, telling me the first thing you have to do is to define Christian nationalism, because of course it means a million things for a million people. And so I thought I would seek out the best definitions of it and uh, present them to you today. Uh, First of all, let me provide you the definition from listening to NPR, National Public Radio. Christian nationalist is anybody who has voted for President Trump, anybody who is pro-life, anybody who has January 6th on their calendar, and anybody who is a racist. So if you check any of those boxes, according to NPR, you're a Christian nationalist. Um, And you can see the problem with that kind of definition, uh, because it takes uh, lots of things and mixes them together, some that are good, some that are bad some perhaps indifferent. Um, Yoram Hazanoy, who's written a book on conservatism that I read because Al Mohler said it is the best book on Christian nationalism. So I tracked it down and read it. So uh, uh, he, it's not really on Christian nationalism. It's more on what it means to be a conservative as opposed to a liberal. But he does have some good definitions in there. And he says the best way to understand Christian nationalism is to take nationalism and Christianity and bring them together. So nationalism is the idea that uh, there are nations in the world, that nations are defined, and that it is good for nations to look after their own interests, and that the best way to look after their own interests is to preserve their their past, their shared uh, identity. Uh, He's happy with the phrase ethnic identity. Um, He advocates for the Anglo-Protestant tradition. He does not mean race by that as much as kind of a Western European legal tradition. He himself is, is Jewish and lives in Israel, so it's not really an American flavor to his definition. So he takes Christian nationalism as taking nationalism, then add Christianity to it, ergo Christian nationalism. And uh, I mention that because he is somebody who is, uh, has the ear of Al Mohler, and Al Mohler has had him on his uh, interviews a few times and commends him. And people in our congregations will listen to Al Mohler, likely. Most of you probably listen to Al Mohler. And so when you hear Al Mohler describe himself as a Christian nationalist, I just want you to know that's the framework he's talking about. In fact, Al Mohler has said, 
Uh, he actually embraces the phrase Christian nationalist because it's things that, uh, you know, NPR calls him in a negative way, and he's tired of running from labels NPR throws at him. Um, but even in saying that, I want you to appreciate with, with Mueller there, he's not taking the phrase Christian nationalism as a positive thing in and of itself, as much as one that he is accepting because it is lobbed at him by people that he doesn't like. Uh, and so I hope you understand the difference between that. Um, yeah, so if you have people in a congregation that ask you about Mueller's view on Christian nationalism, uh, that's that. But there are two books written on different sides of the Christian nationalism debate. I have them both up here for show and tell uh, to show you, and I'll take their definitions in a second. The first is by Paul Miller. Uh, it's called The Religion of American Greatness, and it is a critique of Christian nationalism. Uh, and the second is by uh, Stephen Wolf, and it is called The Case for Christian Nationalism. So you've got the critique for Christian nationalism, the case for Christian nationalism. These two guys know each other. They debate this topic. Uh, they have sharpened each other's views. And so I think their definitions will suffice for us today. However, in preparing for this, I did listen to uh, the last podcast that each of them were on on this topic. And uh, Paul Miller was on Phil Vischer's podcast, uh, which was so he was the, the case against Christian nationalism, and it was sponsored by Talbot Seminary. Stephen Wolf was on the Chocolate Knox's podcast, which is out of Moscow, Idaho, and it was sponsored. It's the case for Christian nationalism, and it was sponsored by a literal body armor company. <laughs> and that about sums up the debate <laughs> right there. Paul Miller defines Christian nationalism. I think it's a definition that both of these guys would agree on, so that's why I give it to you. The belief that there's something identifiable as an American nation, which is distinct from other nations, that the American nation is and should remain defined by Christianity, and the American people and their government should actively work to defend, sustain, and cultivate Americans' Christian culture, heritage, and values. So that's what he means by Christian nationalism. So right away, you'll notice in that definition that it is uniquely American-specific. It has the word America in there a few times. So it's not really a transcendent definition uh, as much as it's fixed in the U.S. that we are a Christian nation, we were a Christian nation, and it's the government's job to maintain our Christian identity. That's his definition of Christian nationalism. I think Stephen Wolf would agree. I'll put his definition uh, on the screen for you. Stephen Wolf defines Christian nationalism this way. Sorry, that's uh, Paul Miller's. Stephen Wolf defines Christian nationalism this way. Christian nationalism is the totality of national action consisting of civil laws and social customs conducted by a Christian nation as a Christian nation in order to procure for itself both earthly and heavenly good in Christ. So this is, I think, is a very fair definition of people in our congregation when they're talking about Christian nationalism. If they don't mean the Al Mohler kind of, I'm pro-life and uh, I'm, I'm tired of the LBGTQ movement wrecking our world. So that's, some people will call themselves Christian nationalists of that identity. And I'm not really talking about them today. I'm more talking about this because I think the majority of people in our congregation that use the phrase Christian nationalism have this in mind. Uh, this is, I think, a very... Uh, uh, pervasive book and uh, has been read by a lot of people that are in our circles. And so I want to kind of respond to this. If you go back in time, though, Jonathan Edwards will give you a definition of kind of Christian nationalism about your nation being in a covenant with God. It's got a very covenantal flavor to it. 
And you see echoes of that in Stephen Wolf's definition. This, uh, when you see the phrase, in order to procure for itself, that's a very covenantal kind of language. There's promises and conditions. The idea is that if you do this as a nation, God responds with this. So if you do X as a nation, God responds with blessings. If you do Y as a nation, God responds with curses. That's kind of covenantal language, and that is very much part of this Christian nationalism uh, discussion. So I want to spend some time today, maybe another 15, 20 minutes or so, critiquing specifically this, uh, the, the Stephen Wolf presentation of Christian nationalism. Um, there's stuff in his presentation that, that may, or, uh, may be more helpful than other stuff in his presentation. I don't want to present an overly negative picture of him, but I do want to critique it because I do think that his presentation of Christian nationalism is dangerous and it has influenced many people in our in our world, and he calls premillennialists dead weight in evangelicalism, so I feel provoked. Um, he started it. However, he is sponsored by a Christian bo- uh, body armor company, so I do want to be careful. Um, a critique of Christian nationalism, I'll give you four headings. Uh, and you can take notes in this or follow, follow along if you want. First, uh, an issue with Christian nationalism as presented by Stephen Wolf and as is commonly believed is that it idealizes the past. It represents a, or it presents a form of uh, our history that I think is revisionist and often idyllic. Um, it has a view of particularly American history that I think is disconnected from the reality of of what it often was. So much of the presentation of Christian nationalism comes from this idea that our country has a Christian ethnic tradition and a Christian heritage. And by the use of the word heritage, he means something that has been given to us that it's our obligation to pass down. So when Wolf presents Christian nationalism, he very much has in in view this idea that uh, Christianity has been a gift to our nation, that we've received it, and it's our job to guard it through civil government and to pass it down to our children. That's what he means by, by heritage. And so we look at the world as it's going wrong. We see the increase in immorality in our world and in uh, the LBGTQ movement and sexual immorality, the inability to define a man and a woman. And he's examining this and saying our civil government has lost its capacity to guard Christianity to pass it down to the next generation. So if you want Christianity to pass down to your children and a nation that is Christian to pass down to your children, then you need to restore Christianity in the public sphere, specifically through civil government. That's what he means. And it's always in this context of this is our, if it's our heritage, that's something we have had and that we've received from those who have gone before us. And so it is worth asking, at what period of American history did we have what he would refer to as a Christian nation? Uh, he argues very clearly that the civil government should have a, have a role in regulating corporate worship, in overseeing the life of the church, and in instilling cultural and Christian values in our society. So I pause when I see that, and I wonder, when, when did that happen? What time period was our country a Christian nation? And here's a very interesting thought exercise for you. Pick your time period, how you would answer that question, 
and then go and read Christian people who you respect that were alive during that time period and ask yourself, how did they describe the society that they were writing in? So Al Mohler often says 1962. Uh, so he has events that happened that year that change everything. And, uh, and he, you know, he's not wrong. He, he talks about the political controversies that day. Democrats and Republicans had the exact same you know, political agendas. And I'm sure you've heard him give this talk many times. And he's true, and it's right. But go back to the Christians in the 1960s. And were they describing, in the early 60s or late 50s, our nation as having a Christian ethic and being a Christian nation that uh, was worth preserving and passing down to our children? Not really. You know, you think of Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's writing during this time, of course, in, in England, and he's lamenting the materialism that is destroying our society, and, you know, he laments the end of the Sabbath laws, of course, and that would get Wolf's attention, but you see this, this sense of people who are alive then that our, our society is decaying, and there are the, the race riots, and there is segregation, and it's, you know, there's so much going on there that it's, it is odd to peg that as kind of a, a Christian time. Obviously, the LGBTQ movement has increased since then. No-fault divorce has come in since then. Uh, the decline of marriage and all of that. Our society has fundamentally changed since then, but that doesn't mean we want to elevate the Leave it to Beaver era back to you know, the Christian nation ethos. You can go back further than that. You can go back to the Second Great Awakening. You know, is that the religious zenith of our nation? And you think of, you know, how did Spurgeon describe America during that time? It wasn't a Christian, you know, uh, bastion of Christianity or anything. In fact, uh, there's an author named Christian George who just published a book called The Lost Sermons of Spurgeon that has an introduction that's just remarkable. Uh, and it has these quotes from Spurgeon about the United States and their culture. He describes American culture as, quote, shameful and abominable, uh, resulting in bloodshed that was rightly sent our way. Uh, he says America's... Uh, as a nation is abhorrent and bloodthirsty. And he's talking about slavery here and the, the expansion of slavery that would lead to the Civil War. Uh, he has lines in there like, if God doesn't punish America with a, a bloody war, then he's not just. You know, he's being prophetic about the Civil War. And of course, it comes and he takes vindication. But Spurgeon, when he's writing about that, he's not excusing England either. He has a, another great line in there where he says, quote, slavery would never have been in the U.S. had it not been carried there from Manchester and Liverpool. I bring that quote to you just to let you know, like when you're talking about maybe the Anglo-Protestant tradition, well, well, when? You know, when are you drawing from? The 1800s, the 1700s, when the slaves were coming from Manchester and Liverpool? Like, where exactly are you pegging this down? Go back to Jonathan Edwards. He said, uh, the founding of our country, the constitutional documents, that's it. Well, again, go back to those guys who are alive and doing evangelism them and think about how they described that time period. You know, Edwards used this kind of covenantal language that our nation was entering into a covenant with God with its founding and all that, and he's writing, you know, 35 years before uh, the Declaration of Independence, but he's, he's framing it that way. And of course, he's framing it that way because our country is experiencing the curses from it. You know, you see the halfway covenant and the, the lack of conversion, all this flowing, flowing out of that. Uh, the religious test clause in our constitution, you can't have a test of religiosity for a public office. That's not the kind of thing you would exactly put into your constitution if you were intentionally developing a Protestant country. Now, certainly, any kind of look at our nation's founding is going to be complicated. 
because we have a two-party system and you have just a fundamental disagreement about is our country existing to conserve uh, a tradition and heritage or is our country existing to procure liberties for others? I mean, this is the, the early political divides, John Adams and, and Thomas Jefferson. And Christians are very much active in that first presidential election between Adams and Jefferson after Washington left. Then you had Christians like rending their garments. See, if Jefferson wins, our country is over, you know? Like the religious experiment we have here, it's all over if Jefferson wins. Well, guess what? He lost that election, but he won the next one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a okay president. I guess we built a monument for him. I live pretty close to it. It's beautiful. Uh, the nation carried on. Uh, it carried on. And so you can say the Constitution reflects these kind of liberties that are enshrined, but that's not as simple as saying it was a Christian nation. Um, the country, the route that our country chose was e pluribus unum, not in Christus solus. You know, we didn't choose in Christ alone as our country's motto, but out of many, one. This idea that we would forge a national identity through immigration and through different, different ethnicities that are brought together. So my point in when saying the idealization of the past is not that things are fine now. Like, I'm not trying to say, oh, things are just fine. They've always been like this. Relax. I'm not trying to downplay the immorality of our current society. And I'm also not trying to adopt the 1619 Project or anything nuts like that and saying it's worse. The past is worse than it was. Of course, our country has brought religious freedom and democracy to much of the world and there are incredible blessings from being an American, and including the missionary movement that has sent missionaries around the world, the principles of liberty and American exceptionalism, and, and all of that. I embrace that and celebrate that, and I think we should embrace that and celebrate that. But you want to do that while avoiding the idealization of the past as if that was the thing that would protect us in the future. That's my point with this. Secondly, uh, my critique of Christian nationalism, first of all, it often idealizes the past. Secondly, it impossibilizes the present. So I'm a preacher. I'm trying to find an outline that works. And <laughs> impossibilizes, okay? That's, that's what I came up with. Uh, you can critique that like you've never done that in a sermon. Come on. <laughs> so Wolf says that uh, he makes a pretty good point here. He says, it's not that the idea of Christianity is bad and that the ideas of Christianity have failed in our, in our culture. It's that Christians have lost the willpower to enact them in our culture. So he sets it up as a dichotomy. Why is gay marriage on the rise and divorce on the rise and God taken out of schools and Ten Commandments off of walls? Why has all of that happened? He says, it's not because the ideas of Christian nationalism has failed but because the willpower of Christians to enact the changes necessary to guard that, that's what's failed. And I would say that's a false dichotomy. That's not true. Um, the problem is that Christians are a minority in, in our nation. The way is narrow. I mean, the theme of this conference is the remnant for goodness sakes. <laughs> the idea of a Christian nation doesn't function in that concept. Uh, Lawson's message opening this, con uh, this conference was perfect. Uh, the majority is always wrong. That's the line that has echoed in my mind. The majority is never right about anything. And so if you turn to government through majority rule to institutionalize congregational worship and the true Christian gospel, 
you're going to fail. Just that political endeavor is going to make you pursue partnerships with people that are outside those that you would want overseeing Christian worship, for example. You're going to partner with Catholics. You're going to partner with Mormons. You're going to have to do that because it's a democracy and you need to expand your reach. Like this is basic political theory, honestly. And that's not a recipe for healthy corporate worship if it is connected to the civil government. If you take the Benedict option, don't be surprised when you have to partner with Benedictine monks. If you're going to endeavor that way to oversee the Christian influence in our society through democracy, uh, you're going to have to expand those who you would call in the camp. Now, that is fine for law issues. Let me give, use the law-gospel distinction. That's fine for law issues. If you're passing you know, Prop 8 in California, if you're going after gay marriage, if you're trying to repeal no-fault divorce or put justices on the Supreme Court that are pro-life, all good endeavors. Those are law issues. And law issues very much you want to partner with anybody on your side, you know? If, if your dog is pro-life, make your dog vote, you know? That's, when it comes to that kind of stuff, the bigger the, the coalition, the better. But when it comes to gospel issues, not so. You don't partner with those people in gospel issues. The problem with Christian nationalism is it combines both into the church and into the government. It erodes that distinction between the two of them. The majority of a nation will never be able to institutionalize true religion. And of course, we understand that from the basic premise of remnant theology. At some point, Christians vote. And at some point, the person they're voting for loses. And the solution to that is not press the voting button harder. Um, my church a few years ago got all in on a school board election. You know, I'm in Northern Virginia, and the school board was a big deal back then. It's even, it made national news, and we were all in. There was a school board candidate that we wanted to win, and the, the, the guys that were in the school board right now, one was like an openly homosexual guy with no kids. And why is that guy in the school board, for goodness sakes? And like his one priority was renaming the high schools. And I, the whole thing was just terrible, and it got even worse. So we got all in with this. And this, the lady who we were behind was a Catholic woman. And, but she was the best choice for the school board, and we fully embraced it. I even had her speak at the end of, like, close the evening service in prayer. Amen. Benediction. But here, school board member, I mean, I did everything I could. And she lost by, like, 20,000 votes. So what's the problem? It's not the willpower. It's not how hard I press the voting button. It's just that the way is narrow. Now, it's not a total failure because, you know, we took stands for righteousness and, you know, whatever. But the point is, if the goal is the takeover of civil religion, the way is narrow and it is an impossible task. Another area in which it's impossible is Wolf is very clear that a true nation, as defined as a true nation, can only have one ethnicity in it. And when he says ethnicity here, he does not mean merely ethnos, like the, the Greek word ethnos, because that is true in a sense. The word ethnos would be the best word for nation. So you could say every nation is only one ethnos, and that, you know, it's a tautology. It's just true. But that's not what he means by it. He means by a shared culture, a shared heritage, shared customs and holidays and language and all of that to pass down. He makes it very clear in, in the quote. Uh, he says, no nation, properly speaking, is composed of two or more ethnicities, 
So as an American, you hear that and you just want to pause for a second and say, what? <laughs> like how? You can't undo this. Like maybe if you're back in 1776 and you want to say we're only going to have one ethnicity in our nation, sure. But then I remember the Spurgeon quote, like slaves got here because we brought them here. And so already you're starting off with mixed ethnicities. There were Indians in the land, remember where Jonathan Edwards went. So you're in this, already in our founding, there are more than one ethnic group that are properly going to be inside of our nation. So ideally, maybe every nation would only have one ethnic group. Okay, I'll, I'll play along. Sure, ideally, every nation can only have one ethnic group. All right, what now? What now? I mean, how do you disentangle this? And where would you, where would you go? And, and Wolf answers that question by you pause immigration. Right away, pause immigration. Don't add new people into the mix if the people who are here don't know uh, what, who we are. You can't add new people if those who are in the room don't know who they are. That's his argument. Even that level, though, I mean, is that even possible? Um, so at the very basics of this, it's uh, an impossible, impossible task. You know, he talks about uh, the, most, the easiest application of Christian nationalism right now, he says, would be a return to the Sabbath laws. And that's the easiest thing because some parts of our country still have Sabbath laws. I'm in Northern Virginia. We have a law. You can't hunt with a gun on Sundays. I have no idea how that law came. You know, maybe everybody's in church and somebody's shooting outside the church, the deer that runs by. I have no idea. We have that law in Fairfax County. That's great. That's a Sabbath kind of law. It protects congregational worship somehow, I guess. And so he says, that's very good. It's it's easy to adopt those kind of of rules in society. But even that, I start thinking, you know, I'm a little bit of a dispensationalist. Am I comfortable with Sabbath laws? Uh, and I heard in one podcast Wolf unironically say, well, first of all, he, he argues that there's exemptions. Like if you're not a Christian, you don't have to follow the Sabbath laws. You know? um, you're exempt. You're not going to compel people to worship that aren't believers. So great. And then he unironically says, like you wouldn't, have, you wouldn't compel a Jew to follow the Sabbath laws. All right. So there we are. So even if you're following along and he says, listen, we can exempt people. I'm like, all right, I'll play along. Uh, how far can I go before I need to take an exemption? Step one, Sabbath laws. <laughs> I mean, it would have been nice if I could have stayed in the train for more than one stop, I guess. <laughs> anyway, it impossibilizes the president. How do you even bring those things into the discussion? Number three, it institutionalizes the church. It institutionalizes the church. And I would say positively that democracy and liberty thrive when there's a separation of church and state. Uh, I I think the two-kingdom approach to understanding the way the world works is designed by God, going back to Genesis 9, is helpful and is healthy, that the government has oversight of parts of our world and the church has oversights of other parts of our world. The easiest way to understand the two-kingdom theology is that the government oversees roads and the church oversees souls. Keep everybody stay in their own lane. We can get along just fine here. Um, and that's, a, that's an oversimplification of two-kingdom theology. But I do think that approach to understanding uh, the way the world works is healthy. It's in contrast to the Catholic doctrine of not two kingdoms, but the Catholics have a doctrine of two swords, it's called. Um, there's, there's a sword of government and the sword of the church, and those two swords should be held in one hand by the same person. 
So that's why you have, even in the Anglican Church, the king is the head of the church and of England. And you get this in the Catholic Church where the Pope was appointing emperors, and they've eroded from that over time, of course. And a lot of that is the Protestant Reformation. You see John Owen arguing for religious liberty and separation of church and state. But John Owen, if you read him, what what did he mean by separation of church and state? What he meant is that the church decides who the heretics are, not the government, and the government kills them, not the church. So if everybody can play nicely, (laughs) you'll get along great. Okay, And the U.S. was so close to that. You think of the Salem witch trials, you know, and which is ridiculed and, and mocked. Nate Pickowitz's book on uh, uh, the American Puritans is so good on this topic, and it just brings it to light. Like, you know, Samuel Willard is a pastor in the, in the U.S., and people are being charged with witchcraft, and the judges are asking the pastors, is witchcraft a sin? What's the penalty for it? So you're a pastor, and you're subpoenaed to your local judge, and he wants to know, is witchcraft wrong? And you're like, yes. And what's the consequence for it in the Old Testament? Death. And, but it's the government that puts him to death. It's just the pastor that points to the witch. And that's, we are close to that. And so when you read about the separation of church and state, I know it's popular in our world to say that just means the government's not going to pay for churches. Yeah, that's true. But it is also more than that. It's also more than that. that the government is not identifying who the heretics are. And... The church is not putting them forward. We can exist in different worlds in that sense, different spheres of influence. Um, Well, in Christian nationalism, uh, by Wolf's uh, construction of it, the church is given to the world to foster morality and, and preach the gospel and all of this, but the government is given to the world to ensure that the church is doing that properly and appropriately. And I would say that's not something that should be handed over to the government. The state, first of all, the state is bad at everything they do. Amen? Amen. You can't even get your driver's license on time. The state's bad. You want to hand over the protection of the gospel to the state. They will mess it up for sure. Um, Fostering morality is not a task ideal for the state. Uh, Or to use their own terminology, the state's job is law, not gospel. So don't give the state the gospel too. But it institutionalizes the church. What I mean by that, let me give you Wolf's syllogism. Wolf gives a syllogism for it. I think it's helpful. This is verbatim from his book. Here's a syllogism. Civil government ought to direct its people to, its, to, to true religion. Christianity is a true religion. Therefore, civil government ought to direct people to the true religion. Tracking with that? You know, but find the error in it. And I would say the error is that civil government ought to direct people to true religion. That's not how God designed government. You go back to Acts 17. God designed government to give borders to the world and to let people go their own way until the gospel comes into the world and chases them down. Very different than saying government's job was to corral them back to Babel. The government's job was not to make sure Babel ensure, you know, uh, kept going on on schedule. Um, in fact, nations come from the failure in precisely that way. Wolf goes on to say, government was always intended to order matters to his complete good, because there is, is uh, man's complete good, which includes heavenly life. So that's his argument, and I would say that's not true. 
Uh, the church's job is that. The government's job is to protect the church and to protect people and individuals to guard life, etc. Let's not lose sight of that. So by eroding the distinction, Christian nationalism institutionalizes the church by making it part of the state, makes the state part of the church. And I don't know if Wolf would agree with my characterization of that, but that's honestly what I came away with after, after reading um, the book. Uh, number four. Um, my critique of Christian nationalism it idealizes the past, it impossibilizes the present, it institutionalizes the church, and it idolizes ethnicity. It idolizes ethnicity. Now, I want to be very clear because I think people do criticize Christian nationalism for being, for being racist, and so I want to be super clear that there's a distinction between ethnicity and race. Uh, I reject race as a concept, like out the gate, we're all from Adam. There's no such thing as race just bottom line. It's a biological fiction designed to create divisions and foster divisions in humanity and probably to steal your money. So that's, that's where I go with race. Um, ethnicity is a thing, of course. There's different languages and different cultures, of course. And so I understand ethnicity as a concept. Wolf understands that ethnicity is a concept. He uses that and not race. And so I, I would say if somebody is accusing them of racism, I would, would say they're not reading him fairly or charitably. That being said, I would say that this approach to Christian nationalism does idolize ethnicity. And even when I think of idolizing ethnicity, I struggle with the word idolize, but I'm happy with it because an idol is what you put your trust in, what you put your hope in, and what you think will deliver you and give you and your children a secure future. That's an idol. An idol will provide peace and prosperity for your offspring if you serve it and protect it the right way. And there's very much a sense in Christian nationalism that if we lose our ethnic identity, we lose the future to hand over to our children. If we guard our ethnic identity, we have something to foster true religion in the future. And I think that does cross the line into idolatry. I'm sure Stephen Wolf would disagree with my characterization of that. Absolutely, I'm sure he would. Uh, but nevertheless, it's... It's what I come away with after reading it. He presents a desire to recover an ethnic heritage that will restore our nation back to what it once was. And this leads to all kinds of clumsiness, all kinds of clumsiness in his theology and in his practical solutions. I mean, he has a whole debate about if or interracial marriage is acceptable or inter-ethnic marriage is acceptable. Uh, because if you understand you're supposed to guard your ethnicity, to hand it down to the next generation, what if one of your children marries someone from a different ethnic group? Isn't that foiling what you're trying to pass down? And he has a distinction. You know, it's a, a, an interracial marriage, or inter, I'm using interracial just because it's the phrase that we often use, but interethnic marriage, he would say, it's still a true marriage. It's not like gay marriage, which is no marriage at all. It's just an unwise marriage or an unhelpful marriage, or he has a different category of, of uh, faltering for that. And it's just a really unnecessary or unhelpful kind of cul-de-sac you get trapped in. If you're having to defend uh, why your opposition to interracial marriage isn't racism, it's just maybe take a little step back uh, and look at it. Um, you know, he says, if, you know, of course, the merging of ethnicities will undo the shared heritage. And as a premillennial dispensationalist, I'm listening to that and saying, I think if two Christians marry, that's, what you're, that's the identity you're fostering. 
And if it's an interracial marriage, that's almost more magnifying the unity you have in Christ. It's not eroding it. It's, it's actually magnifying. It would be kind of my premillennial approach <laughs> to understanding that. Like there's some kingdom we're building for and fostering that's not going to be here in this world. So to elevate culture and ethnicity to where you're like, ah, I suppose there could be an interracial marriage. As long as they're Christians, they could still guard some. It's a close call, though. I mean, that's the language he uses, a close call. It's like, uh, if it's a close call, I think I'm playing the wrong game. Um, elsewhere, he writes, this is another example of this. An important question is whether a Christian nation can refuse to allow the immigration of fellow Christians from foreign lands. I argue they can. Um, along the same line, because you're guarding your ethnic identity. So if you have somebody from another ethnic group, even if they're a Christian coming in, it's diluting or distracting at the very least from what you're trying to guard and protect. And my response to this is that principles of liberty are better pursued than ethnic continuity. Better to, uh, I think our nation, as an American, I think our nation exists to foster liberty even among immigrants um, rather than to guard ethnic unity as a means to giving liberty to the world. Um, when you buy into this approach of ethnicity, I think it really does put the church in a position where it is fostering some kind of cultural and civic religion. The church then is taking on this this guarding the ethnicity of, of the nation, and it's just a very unhelpful place to be. The New Testament does not give the church the mandate of, preserve, of preserving ethnicity. The church, gives, the church is given the mandate of going into all the world and preaching the gospel to every ethnos, not to preserve them, but to transform them. And of course, we're not going to really transform an ethnos because we recognize the remnant theology, that we are the minority. Nevertheless, we go into every ethnic group. So to turn that, that great commission of going to every ethnic group to guarding every ethnic group once the gospel has been inserted into it, I think really turns things upside down. A very good example of this is when you come to the second greatest command. Love your neighbor as yourself. This, in a sense, fulfills the law. So there's this approach inside a lot of Christian nationalism that says in order for you to love your neighbor rightly, you first have to love yourself. Okay? You can't love your neighbor until you first love yourself. And they don't mean that like the self-help guru. Like the self-help guru says that. You know, until you can love others, you've got to give yourself a warm hug in the morning. They don't mean it like that. They mean in an ordered kind of affection, you have to love you and your own before you can love your neighbor and their own. And, the, and so if you want, the best way to love your neighbor is to love yourself first and sort that out in the, in the hierarchy. But that is not how the second greatest command is used in the Bible. When you go back to the Old Testament and trace where it comes from, it is often in the context of foreigners. Your enemy's ox wanders into your yard. Bring it back. You find your enemy's donkey laying on its back. You know, it's load shifted, braying all kinds of stuff. You think, oh man, I hope my enemy loses his donkey. No, you're supposed to help it up and send him back. You're supposed to love your neighbor. The Egyptian, the guy who's half Egyptian and is arrested for uh, Sabbath breaking. You're supposed to love your neighbor by enforcing justice equally, regardless of their ethnic group. In fact, Exodus 20 ties loving your neighbor to the fact that you were strangers and sojourners in Egypt. So it's very much in the context of ethnic plurality, not of ethnic exclusivity, 
I would say. And once you prioritize love for your own over love for your neighbor, it becomes a very like scribe kind of conversation with who exactly is my neighbor? I don't think it's a healthy way to go. Uh, I think nations, you know, and then to take that personal ethic and apply it to nations is a second misguided step. You don't want to take a personal ethic and say nations should act like that. You have to embrace the fact that you as an individual need to love your enemy different than your nation needs to love its enemies. Your nation, listen, Samuel could hack Agag to pieces, tiny pieces even, and still say he loves his enemy because Samuel is acting as an agent of the state in that sense. That's very different than David, who's not going to kill Saul in the, in, the, in the cave. You know, David loves Saul in that sense as his enemy. David loves Saul so much he killed the dude who told him Saul died. You have to understand there's a different personal ethic than national ethic. When you conflate the two, as you would have to in Christian nationalism, you're going to be going down a wrong road, which will lead you to doing things like saying, in order for you to love your neighbor properly, first love yourself, because that's going to the nation, national level. For the U.S. to love Mexico properly, we have to love U.S. first before we have anything left to love Mexico with. And I would say that is a contortion of what the second greatest command actually is about. Every nation in human history has tried to build paradise, and they have all failed. Nations always try to love themselves, and they always mess it up. Nations are lame at this. And, and part of this, one more thing on this, and then I'll, I'll move on. The idealization of, of ethnicity in this book. So much of this book, probably the main doctrinal point this book makes, and that's not an exaggeration, is that ethnic groups and nations properly conceived of, boundaries, leaders, etc., would have existed in a sinless world. So he argues very at the beginning of this book that Adam and Eve, had they not sinned, they would have been fruitful and multiplied. People would have multiplied. Those people would have had competing needs, like this little village wants to build a dam, but that would deprive water from this village. So somebody's got a referee, you know, who has the water rights. That's government's job. And so there would be governments looking out for their own interests, even in a pre-fall world. Okay, so that's a critical part of this argument. And I read that and think, I, yikes, no, that's not true. It just isn't true. Uh, because the government did not develop, even in a post-fall world, even with sin in the world, government did not develop until God intervened and made it so. There was not government in the pre-fall world. Uh, and there was not government in the pre-flood world. There was not government until God established it in Genesis, the end of Genesis 8 and the chart of Genesis 9. That's where government came, comes from. So if your kind of political approach hinges on something as abstract and hypothetical and as wrong as nations existing before the fall, uh, you remove that, so much of this falls apart. And it falls apart because the, the nation's job, he would say, is to get us back to the garden. Uh, the nation is working to it's the redemptive arc. You want to get back to how things were without sin in the world, and, but you want to do that through nations. So you have to then logically argue that nations would have existed without the fall. One more comment on, on this. There are some, like in the, in the woke world, in, the, in this critical race theory world, there's also that same argument. 
that there would be diversity of ethnic and racial groups even without the fall because they prize uh, ethnicity so much that they want diversity of it that they also have to argue they would exist without the fall. So it's one of those cases where the far left and the far right start to intersect on the other side of the globe where they're both making an argument that ethnicities and nations would have existed without sin in the world and that's just not what the Bible actually teaches. So... Uh, I want to move on from that. Just a few more minutes, I'll go pretty quickly here. When I critique Christian nationalism, don't hear me saying I I, I buy into this critique of Christian nationalism. I do know Paul Miller. I do respect him. Uh, He's a great and and godly guy, and I'm very thankful for him. Uh, That being said, I don't follow all of his conclusions either, and I think there is some stuff in the religious liberty uh, world that is also deserving of critique. And I mention this because... Often if you critique Christian nationalism, you get lumped in with like the David Frenches of the world. Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, and so I do just want to, I'll put this up. I'm not going to go through all these, but here's my religious liberty trademark critique. And by religious liberty, I mean those that are like, you know, that's a religious liberty complex. Um, and, you know, I would say that they have failed us because they were silent during COVID, of course. They spent, literally spent more time advocating for mosques to open on ground zero than they did for churches to open during COVID. And that's not an exaggeration. Um, and I, I bring that up just because a lot of Christian nationalists are being drawn from this idea of like, look, look what happened during COVID. The government shut us down and the religious liberty people were nowhere to be seen. Nowhere to be seen. So what's up with that? Christian nationalism is saying, hey, we have the solution. Come join our nation. But they are right. The religious liberty enterprise failed us big time during COVID. Uh, The religious liberty crew has an over-reliance on natural law. They would say you build a society out of applying natural law. And there's a sense in which that's true. Like every nation has laws against murder and laws against adultery in some sense. There's a sense that natural law is there. But the problem with natural law is that it can be jaded and faded and misused and misunderstood. When you think of natural law, you probably go right away to Psalm 19, and it's contrasted with Scripture. Or you go to Romans 1, and in Romans 1, what do people do with natural law? Psh, they choke it to death, and they don't want to look at it. They try to bury it. Um, and so natural law has limitations to it. And the problem with a lot of the religious liberty critiques of Christian nationalism is that they say, hey, the solution to Christian nationalism is only to rely on natural law. So there's gay marriage in the world. You just make appeals about what is best for human flourishing and our consciences know that you know, positive and negative is what gives you the charge, not too positive kind of thing, like just purely examples from natural law. And the problem with that is that it doesn't work all the time. Some people reject natural law, and, uh, and you have to be able to respond to it with the clear word from the Lord. Uh, if you put all your eggs in the natural law basket, don't be surprised when people start worshiping the chicken. Some of you need to think about that for one more second. If you put all your stock in natural law to guard morality in the world, you're going to end up with a bunch of people worshiping creation and worshiping themselves. And then finally, religious liberty complex is unable to adequately address current issues. There's a whole section in this book, and of course you're familiar with it about drag, drag queen story hour, and you think, how common is drag queen story hour anyway when you'd be talking about this? Well, the reason it is an issue is because it's showing you the weakness of that argument. That's why it's so prominent, 
And if, you, if you're looking at, you know, a transvestite dressing in clothes in front of little kids and doing some kind of dance, and you're like, I don't know what to say about this because it's legal. And if I say that it is bad for that person to do that, then they can turn around and kick the Baptists out of the library next week. I mean, the Baptists have kicked out of the library 200 years ago, man. Baptists aren't allowed anywhere near that library. Um, yeah, but the First Amendment says they have a right for free association and expression. Like, Okay, you can read the First Amendment. Try reading the room. Look around. I mean, this is, this is deplorable. It's not acceptable. It is sinful. And it takes the Christian to come on the stage and say, that is wrong. I don't care if the library allows it. I don't care if the government allows it. It's sinful, and it should not be allowed. And to say, oh, you can't say that because that's Christian nationalism is very misguided. That's not Christian nationalism. Punishing sinful conduct, especially that affects children or exposes children to immorality, should be punished by the law. And to say that is not Christian nationalism. You think of, why did John the Baptist get killed? You know, it wasn't for pointing people to Jesus. He did that all day long. It was for calling out Herod, and he didn't use natural law. He's like, you cannot marry your brother's wife. Are you out of your mind? And loses his head. I think it's worth remembering that as we think through what God made government to do. And so I want to end with this. What is the role of government in the world? Uh, so what, I've critiqued Christian nationalism. I've critiqued the religious liberty uh, complex. Now let me give you uh, my own positive view of what's the role of government. Uh, I will just keep this on the slide. I'll walk through it really quickly. I did, here I'm plugging my own book. I did write a book on this called City of Man, Kingdom of God. I think it is sold out in the book tent. Somebody told me that earlier today, but you can find it on Amazon. Thank you very much. Uh, I argue in, in that book that the role of government as defined by Scripture is to protect the worship of the true God. Protect is different than foster. Protect, by protect, I mean make sure people don't burn down churches. That's what I mean by that. Not compel people to worship, not even Sabbath laws or anything like that. Secondly, to protect resources, to, to guard, guard the food source. Of course, this is all balanced. You know, you don't tell farmers they can't work because there's an owl in a tree. You recognize owls have wings and they can fly to the next tree. Um, to protect family, to protect, you know, children, and of course, and this is why the, the drag queen story hour isn't a basic affront to what the role of government is. If that's allowed in any government, a Muslim government, a tree-worshipping government, a so-called Christian government, it should be confronted. Uh, fourth, to protect life. And fifth, generally to punish evil or to restrain evil. That's what God made government to do. And so we interact in our society by fostering this belief in government. It is not to pass down a shared ethnicity. That's not, that, that's what just happens. Uh, it's, not, it's not the church's job to facilitate that in government. Um, that's just the way God made the world. It was God that appointed the nations to go their own way. Uh, until people would seek and find the Lord. And eventually, when the kingdom comes, Jesus will sit on the throne. He won't have governments to regulate the water sources. Jesus will sit on the throne, and he will do it himself. Uh, we look forward to that, that day. With this in mind, when government steps outside of these constructs, they do not need to be obeyed. This is Paul's argument in Romans 13. If the government tells you to do something that's not on the screen, you don't have to obey that doesn't mean you need to rebel. I mean, sometimes you might want to obey because you don't want to go to jail or you don't want to pay the fine. And if the government says you, you, 
you know, can't wear a black puffer coat, but you can only wear a gray puffer coat or whatever, uh, maybe wear the gray coat because you don't want to get a ticket. But don't feel like morally obligated to obey that kind of puffer coat law. Uh, It's a silly law. It doesn't accomplish any of the things that are on the screen that God gave the government to do. Your conscience should be clear unless your conscience isn't clear. And then maybe obey the law. And that's exactly Paul's argument in Romans 13. Every authority that is established by God is established by God. And when government goes beyond how God established it, it ceases to be a functioning authority. And you can still obey it because you want to do the, do the time. If you can't do the time, don't do the crime, you know? Or you can obey it because your conscience bothers you. But if you work through that, your conscience should be free, and you can go live a healthy and happy life. Um, knowing that the government was established by God to do the things that are on the screen. So Christians, of course, are obedient to government generally because government generally does these things. We pray for our government leaders and their conversion, and uh, we hope that our nation has an expression of these things in civil government. And when the government leaves these things, like in the area of of no-fault divorce or like in the area of same-sex marriage or the LGBTQ movement, then we call them out, not because we're building a Christian nation, but because we recognize immorality as immorality and we have a prophetic voice because we have the word of God and so we, we use it. I know we have uh, 10 minutes left and I do want to take uh, a few minutes for questions. Before I do that, here is just my little illustration of you go to Costco after COVID and they have the free samples that are back out. You had this experience, right? They were gone for a while, but the free samples are back out. And there are some people that are just going and eating all of the free samples, and there's a sign on the wall that says, don't eat more than two free samples. You know, you're supposed to go to Costco to buy food. Don't eat all the free samples. But people are out there like, they're stoked, man. COVID's over. They're just feeding their face. And so an interesting dynamic develops. You have some people, and I'm going to call them the Christian nationalists. You have some people who say, we're going to overthrow the tyranny of the Costco leadership. And we're going to make our own laws in here. And we're going to regulate who can eat free samples when to maintain our ethnic continuity with what was here pre-COVID. Okay, that's the Christian nationalists. They're taking over the ice cream aisle. They're going to war over there. You have the religious liberty complex that is out there saying, hey, guys, please don't eat more than two free samples. Uh, it's not best for human flourishing. You, know? you recognize there's lots of people here, and we all want the free samples. So it's actually best for us if you eat two and move on. And that might be effective on some people, but... They're going to look at you and go, like, who are you, man? And so eventually you need the manager to come in, and you would tell the manager, look, the sign is on the wall. Only have two free samples. Enforce that sign. I'm using my prophetic voice to tell you to follow what is revealed to you. You didn't know the sign was there? I'm pointing at it right now. Obey it and kick those people out. That's your prophetic voice. I think if you apply that to how government works, you'll have a better Costco experience. (laughs) All right, let me give you guys a chance for questions. Uh, City of Man, Kingdom of God. Thank you for asking. It's got a handsome yellow cover. (laughs) Yeah, Ryan. Yeah.
Yeah. So, the, yeah, the question is, uh, in a country like Australia, uh, that in many senses, Australia is a post-Christian country that was never was a Christian country. So you, you almost look into a time machine of where it will be in 20 years by looking at a, at a country like that. Uh, they didn't have to work through the, are we a Christian nation, will you hold on to it? You know? uh, so that, that's a great question. So in a nation like that, you look at the screen, you say the government's not really doing the kind of things that are on here. How do we relate to that? And I think you, you pick issues that you do be a prophetic voice to. You, I mean, you do say abortion is wrong. You do say that same-sex marriage and this kind of thing is wrong, and it, you have a twofold a left-right punch. It is against human flourishing and natural law. It's also against the revealed word of God who will hold you to account. Now, people may or may not listen to you, but that's the nature of a prophetic voice. You know, Jeremiah did not measure his ministry off of his, you know, winning everybody over and convincing the king he was right. You know, he gets thrown in the, in the pit. And so you just take on that, that mantle and say, the Lord's placed me here. But it's a good thing that you're not building a Christian nation there. You're building the church of redeemed people inside, and that's where you're pouring out your energy. So I would tell everybody, Australian, American, Canadian, whatever, care a little bit less about government. Like, dial it down on your knob a little bit, you know? Turn off Tucker Carlson for a few minutes and, and read a Puritan. Uh, I mean, you're building something different than the government. That's a great question, Ryan. Thank you. Yeah. So Paul Miller's book, what I like about it is it charitably critiques uh, Stephen Wolf and his book about government. Um, and so I do appreciate that. I do think it has some shortcomings in it, namely his acquiescence to Drag Queen Story Hour. And again, you think, how big of a deal is that? It's, it's, a, it's a deal because it's showing you the outside edge of the argument. So if you're unable to deal with there, you want to work back and say, what, what can you actually, uh, actually deal with? But I do, I do like the book because he's trying to capture a Baptist appreciation for natural law. But like I said, I think he doesn't adequately reckon with the failure of natural law in some circumstances. I know he does say in here he would like our country to get rid of no-fault divorce and, and go back uh, to regulating marriage in, in that sense. Um, so I do, I do appreciate that. Uh, but I do think a little a bit of it can be, and I want to be very charitable because I really do re- respect the guy. I mean, he's a military officer in Afghanistan, teaches political affairs at Georgetown, uh, is a very mature believer. Um, so I, I tremble to criticize anything in his book. But I do think it can come across as a little tone deaf about what's actually happening in our society and the adequacy of natural law to critique it. That's what I would say. Oh, great. Uh, yeah. Is that Rob? Yeah, hey, Rob. Thanks for the presentation. I agree with Yeah. What that punishment should be. Obviously, the Christian nationalists have an internal wickedness, but you know, I don't. I don't think that would be generally my position. I'm how you would assess that. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, how do you determine what is is evil? Is the question under point five in this? I'm getting that from Genesis nine on just the broad picture of government will bear the sword. So the sword, and this is picked up in Romans thirteen, of course. Peter says the same thing. The government bears the sword to punish 
wrongdoers. So that's a, a general phrase. They're going to punish anybody that violates their laws, right or wrong. And so that is the motivation to obey even with nonsensical laws because they, they are armed. Uh, but as far as evil goes more broadly, you think of, of Proverbs uh, that define righteousness and wisdom and what makes a prosperous society. When a righteous person reigns, the people rejoice. So when evil is punished, when the, the sentence, and this is uh, Ecclesiastes as well, when the sentence on a crime is carried out quickly, there is justice in the land. When it's carried out indiscriminately, there's justice in, in the land. When it's carried out with discrimination, one set of laws for these, another for these, there's unrighteousness in the land. So that's all I mean by, by punish evil. As far as you know, what level of crime meets government punishment, you know, I think that varies place to place and is beyond what I would enter into and probably beyond what a Christian would want to spend their prophetic voice in. You know, we're looking at more bigger deals. Thanks, Rob. Yeah, George. Oh, no, go ahead. Uh, so you should buy my book. <laughs> no, in Genesis 9, it says, whoever sheds man's blood, uh, by man's hand shall his blood be shed. So I take that as the establishment of government. So when I say protect life, the institution of, of capital punishment to protect human life, that's what I mean by that. So somebody who's taking somebody's life uh, should be punished by that, um, by, by capital offense. Now that extrapolates to the conditions for human flourishing, to use a natural law concept, that things that allow human society to, to prosper, the government should be institutionalizing those things. And that's generally seen in a uh, negative sense, like don't sword somebody, don't punch somebody, don't carjack somebody, because you're protecting human life and human property. When it becomes proactive, like you must do this, you must sit six feet away, you must put this inside of your body. That's, that stops being protective and starts being proactive and forward-looking. And that, I think, goes beyond what is established in Genesis 9. Um, preventative measures are not prescribed in Genesis 9. It's more punitive measures. And besides that, when you go back to COVID, just to recall, for somebody listening to this in a few years, uh, recall that at the beginning, that's what it was, and that is why churches shut down at the beginning of COVID, Right? 14 days to slow the curve so our scientists can get together and we can figure out what's happening. And so churches are like, yes, we're in. But then when you have the riots in the street and uh, not social distancing at this funeral, but yes, at that funeral, you're like, I don't think it really is about protecting life. And that's when churches opened. So I just make that little note for posterity's sake. George. Hey, Yeah. I'm so glad you asked that because I had that in my notes and I just blew by it. Um, uh, yeah, no, this is, the, these guys are very clear that dispensationalists, premillennialists need not apply. So part of this is an academic exercise. Like this does not work inside of premillennialism. And, and they make that very, very clear. This is building the kingdom. So in a sense, it is very post-millennial, 
And so a premium in this comes along is like, yeah, I too want a day when righteousness flows from the hills. You know, I, I do want that day. Um, and it's going to come to the earth, but it's not going to come to the earth through our civil governments right now. It's going to come to the earth at the second coming of Christ when King Jesus comes. So premillennialism does blunt a lot of this. Now, for a lot of people in our church, they're not coming at it with a grid of, of eschatology. A lot of people in our church are coming at this with, hey, there's like LGBTQ flags all over my kid's kindergarten classroom. And the religious liberty people are like, hey, it's the price of freedom. And this guy is like, no, let's go to war against that. I'm with that dude. And I think that's where most of our congregation is. And so I do think it's helpful to take a step back and talk about premillennialism and homeschooling. I do want to protect you guys' time, so I will take one more question, uh, wherever, wherever the mic went. Yeah, all right. Can you just respond to the argument that idealizing the past, like people, the country was founded by people looking for religious freedom to be able to follow the Bible, and that the rights given in the Declaration of Independence are from the Creator? And yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's true. And when you remove the creator from the equation, you lose the grounds upon which to argue for, uh, well, for religious liberty and the grounds from which to argue for uh, broader liberties in general. I mean, there's a reason that uh, it starts with creation, that God created us because we are creatures. We have inherent liberties that are bestowed by God, not by government. And so a lot of our political debate today is because the creator has been removed and the government steps in to bestow us our rights. And that's why the government can say, hey, you have liberty to worship when we give it to you. And if we take it away from you, you're out of luck. So I think those liberties are very much tied to our creaturely order that God made us. And that is in mind in our country's founding. Uh, That's absolutely true. We come from that sense, the Anglo-Protestant heritage of liberties being passed down that were evident in our country's founding. That, though, is different than using the civil government to foster a Christian identity that will be seen inside of a church in a shared ethnic heritage. So that's why a line like that can be written by Jefferson with a straight face. Yeah, it really can. Because you can take from that our job is to preserve those liberties, or you can take from that our job is to advance those liberties. Conservatism versus liberalism. Um, liberalism coming from the word liberal. Both of those are true in our country's context. Neither one of them settle the Christian nationals in debate, even though they're both evident. When you take the creation out of the creator-creature distinction out of it, you end up with, was, what was it, Mike, who was, uh, Riccardi who was talking, you end up with the inability to distinguish between a man and a woman. You know, who made men and women? God did. If you remove God from the equation, you lose even that ability. And that's a failing of natural law. That's not an argument for Christian nationalism, though. That's an argument uh, for a prophetic voice and to, re- to recognize natural law and return to it. That's what I would say. There's probably a better answer to that, but that's, that's the best I got. I want to let you guys go on time. I will, uh, will stay up here and, and uh, answer any questions because I see a lot of other hands, and I just want to talk to you all. So.